The Fantasy Animation Podcast takes its listeners on a journey through the colliding and sometimes competing worlds of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Each episode, we select an example of fantasy animation and consider the ways in which it functions to inspire and use our imaginations within the sphere of all things that are sculpted, composed, crafted and drawn. To help support the show, please subscribe via your podcast feed and give us a like and a quick review. It takes no more than a minute, but it really helps us to grow our audience. You can also find our archive of podcasts and our weekly blog at fantasy-animation.org. You'll find the latest reviews there, features, editorials, all written by academics, writers, historians and professional animators working within these overlapping media, mediums and genres. Failing all that, tell your friends, tell a friend about the show and the good work we do here. There's no substitution for good old-fashioned word of mouth, so thanks for downloading and I really hope you enjoy the show. Hi listeners, welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And me, Alex Sargent. So we're doing Spider-Man No Way Home for this episode. So we're returning to Marvel. Um, we are doing the most recent, at the time of recording, but who knows, um, the, the Spider-Man movies, I guess the third in a trilogy that sort of connect together. And I think that'll be part of the conversations that we have. So this is sort of the... Um, crossover extravaganza, let's say, yeah. the, the kind of Spider-Man. You get three for the price of one, um, as well as a few villains from previous iterations of the character. Um, and we can kind of talk about that in relation to franchises. Mm. So obviously lots to say about kind of narrative and style and um, I think, yeah, kind of the multiverse phenomenon that has gripped a, a number of kind of popular Hollywood cinema um uh, Hollywood films over the last few years, uh, yeah, visual effects. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's lots to say. Um, fantasy. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I've got anything like completely related to fantasy scholarship today, but of course it's a film that I have a quite an imaginative response to. I think you know, it's a, you know, having grown up with the various incarnations of Spider-Man, yep. um, being quite um, key to a sort of one's own development as a as a film fan and an academic I think it's hard not to think about some quite emotionally affecting mm-hmm. experiences of seeing a lot of these kind of worlds and, and previous memories collide with the new and things like that so there's lots of fun imaginative it's about imagining yes yeah. is it does it feed about. into some of your superhero stuff on are you doing kind of spider I know you're oh, we can talk about ethics if you want yeah, but just interested well, we, in might, we might get there yeah Spider-Man okay. Spider-Man's an interesting ethical conundrum so we might talk about that responsibility etc great responsibility great indeed um, there's a whole slogan there is so uh, thankfully it's not just not just us joining us as a very special guest Dr Nick Jones who is senior lecturer in film television and digital culture at the University of York and whose research interests include digital effects popular cinema and interactive media he's published two books on the topic so the first one Hollywood action films and spatial theory from 2015 with Routledge as well as um, spaces mapped and monstrous 
digital 3D and visual culture um, for Columbia University Press um, a couple of years ago, 2020. He's also written a number of um, chapters and journal articles in these areas too, ranging from pieces on the Resident Evil films, the perpetual motion aesthetic of action cinema, uh, and most recently a VFX or an article about VFX breakdown videos that reveal kind of questions of labor duration and uh, VFX magic. Handily for us, this VFX breakdown article also touches on recent Spider-Man cinema. So Nick, many thanks for joining us for the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. Um, so we have had debates off air about which film we are doing and why, <laughs> and which film should perhaps lead the discussion and why. Um, but we felt it was a good kind of, or, or when we talked to you about coming on, a good starting point would be Spider-Man No Way Home, but we can, in true tentacular style, go off into the other kinds of... Um, in, in the fil- like, Much like the film itself, if we want to uh, relive some of the past memories. I think we, it's exactly. We so. so it's part of... It's the most recent, as I said, of a trilogy, but it's also in conversation with another two iterations of the, of the character. Mm-hmm. So the early 2000s, and then I guess sort of 2013, 14, Andrew Garfield and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a starter for 10, wh- what is it about this particular film, given the research interests um, that you have and are having about um, popular cinema and VFX and um, stuff like that, why, why No Way Home? Why is it a good one for us to chat about um, and we'll chat about with you? So, uh, great question. Uh, why did I choose that? I don't know. I was wondering that myself as I was making <laughs> these notes this morning, thinking, well, I have a lot that I want to say about it, but nothing that forms a cohesive kind of mission statement. I haven't done research into No Way Home specifically. I, I mention it yep. in something that um, we'll talk about later on, I'm sure, in the podcast yep. that I will plug mercilessly. Do it. Um, but also, yeah, kind of as you guys have said, the, the way it plugs into... Uh, a whole bunch of other Spider-Man films, but also um, issues around kind of transmedia franchising today. So I, I was thinking about what's going to fit the brief of the podcast yeah. and nicely, uh, in an ideal world, bridge fantasy and animation. And I thought No Way Home has some really interesting stuff around kind of the fantastical space of a franchise. Mm. What you can do in the fantasy space that is a contemporary transmedia franchise, which is to say you can empty all of your toy box onto the floor um, and have everything kind of interacting. And also there's all these issues around kind of VFX and animation and and those are things that, yeah, Yeah. as you pointed out um, very kindly in the introduction that I have talked about in a recently published article about the second... Yes. Tom Holland, Spider-Man. Film. Yeah, I mean it's, it's an interesting one. This film in particular, because and we again we're currently recording this at the at the Bass Conference, and I've had a lot of conversations about kind of contemporary Hollywood, and we talked about superheroes, and we talked about Marvel, and obviously we're in the latest phase of Marvel, where perhaps some of the kudos or quality or let's say the responses to some of Marvel films of the past are not quite being replicated Mm. in the most recent phase of of films Um, and it seems as though and it's interesting that the two Spider-Man films this one and Far From Home which are very directly linked in terms of the final scene of the previous film and then we lead Mm -hmm. straight into this new film um, No Way Home it they're in conversation but they're also released quite closely together which is sort of unusual to have two films Spider-Man films I think No Way uh, Home is um, late 2021 Mm -hmm. and then Far From Home 2019 I think Mm -hmm. which is quite close together Mm -hmm. I mean normally Marvel spreads out its its characters and and, um, unless of course there are these big 
uh, Avengers type sure. movies but in terms of standalone movies there's a bit of a gap between some of them uh, the thing I'll throw in there <coughs> as close as they are together of course sort of just to do the historical context they felt very far apart in that there was 2020 in the middle of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so we had the thorny issue of of kind of going through um, lockdowns and things like that, and this was very much pitched as a sort of um, cinema is back. Cinema is back. back. We're all back. Yeah. The communal experience. Yeah. Um, and we're reliving our childhoods with all these kind of yeah nostalgic nods to earlier films and, and just that warm, fuzzy feeling yeah. post-pandemic that No Way Home provided. I, I will, We will get to this in more detail, I hope, but um, I'm astonished um, and I think it's fascinating that No Way Home came out within a few days of The Matrix Resurrections Mm -hmm. and I think these films are very very similar but also very different in the way that they treat um, kind of overlapping themes and ideas around nostalgia and the past and and kind of all of that stuff so um, yeah two different ways of kind of dealing with a um, what ended up being a post-pandemic post-pandemic reality and kind of how we how we move on, what the next step is yeah, yeah, for yeah. us. The, the reason I mentioned that kind of proximity is that, that there are six movies between the first Spider-Man, so Spider-Man Homecoming in 2017 and then um, Spider-Man Far From Home in, in 2019. So that's even just two years, mm. but there are six movies in between those two. Between Far From Home 2019 and uh, No Way Home 2021, there are only three. So it's, it's sort of... Spider-Man's come around again, um, and it seems. And I don't know what your thoughts are on this about Spider-Man being sort of a, a Marvel character that is, or, or, or a popular. These films, these films in particular, tend to do quite well. They're kind of a safe pair of hands, let's say. Mm. I think that Marvel are reliant, and perhaps the three that came between the the, the Spider-Man films. We've got Black Widow, which is a is a kind of a great film, um, but had the COVID. Kind of in terms of release, the impact mm-hmm. of COVID on the release date. Then Shang Chi, which is a very different film, and then Eternals, which didn't yeah. do very well, which I <clears throat> love really. It's too yeah. long, but it's, I think it's great. <laughs> then you have Spider Man No Way Home as a kind of safe pair of hands again. So it feels like the feels like the film has to do a lot, a lot with the COVID landscape. It has to do a lot with the reception of the Marvel films. It's whether or not I, I don't know the answer to this, and Marvel will never tell me whether it was kind of pushed forward because of it should have come later. In fact, I think it was. It's supposed to be the other way around from Multiverse, Doctor Strange, right, and Multiverse, yes, which we've done previously. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels like they were swapped around. Probably they will tell us because of filming and, and, and um, kind of reshoots and things like that. But it feels like to go straight into Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness after Eternals feels a bit of a risk, given mm-hmm. the tone of Multiverse, whereas this feels a little bit more... Let's get everyone back, and that's all kind of pleasurable, and that's where the spectacle lies. To add something to that, I, maybe this is just reflecting my own perspective a bit too much here, but I think there's something about the Spider-Man within the Marvel Cinematic Universe that has a sort of weirdly almost fractural logic to it in that you could watch this as the next Marvel movie, like you've just plotted, yeah. or you can watch it as the third Spider-Man, Spider-Man yeah. movie, or you can watch it as the ninth yeah. Spider-Man, well, no, eighth. 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 eighth in a kind of Star Wars-esque <clears throat> three... Um, three eras Interesting, of Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. And so there's sagas. The, there's yeah, the, the, the Maguire sagas. saga. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if yeah. how much you know. And I'm always interested in this with Marvel on a kind of boring, but also you know, hopefully more interesting level of like how much are we supposed to watch of all of this? And the answer is oh, that all of it. Well, all of it, and yet they don't want to money. And yet they don't want to alienate people too much if you've only seen some of it. So like, there's a weird like thing they do about like I don't know. Like I find the television shows often the consequences it of the television shows have a more preferee 
um, impact upon the films. There seems to be a, you can just watch the films, mm. you might miss 30 seconds of a knowing look or, or, or something that you might have to whisper to someone, but actually we still want you to be able to watch the films without watching yeah. the TV shows. This feels like a film that you could watch in, with all, with, in a very different way depending on which baggage you're bringing to it mm-hmm. and it gives to that or it rewards mm-hmm. that that those levels of nostalgia or those kind of the, those vested interests in different ways yeah. so yeah, yeah, yeah and that's why I think it's it's um, Spider-Man is a great figure for our contemporary transmedia MC universe kind of present because he's a web slinger he's yeah. all about navigating and creating webs and what we see in, <laughs> in a film like Spider-Man No Way Home is is this huge as you've just alluded mm. this huge transmedia web um, all these connections all these you know kind of quivering it over here connects to, to all these other things over there mm. but at the same time it has to um, of course as a, as a kind of piece of um, as, a, as a commodity it has to be open to as many consumers as possible and therefore it can't completely rely on all of these connections they have to function as mm. kind of extra bonuses or things that enrich the text even as um, it also kind of wants to just function as a, a, a fun, jolly romp on its own terms. Hmm. Yeah. So depending on whether we class it as one of 31 films, <laughs> one of three films, or one of eight films, presumably that changes the way one provides a plot synopsis <laughs> because it is charged yes. with the baggage of 30 other films or at that point 26 other films. I think it was number 27. Um, so I just so are, are you going to attempt? Though? No, I'm going to ask you to. Um, <laughs> but I just, so I just in terms of, of of the plot, the implications of that is you either read it as uh, you either read it as the ongoing story of Spider-Man slash Tom Holland's mm. negotiation of a life without Iron Man uh, and his relationship to and and the fact he was kind of burned in the previous film because of his kind of grief and um, kind of couldn't see what was in front of him with regards to Mysterio. Um, or it's him navigating a world post-Infinity Saga, mm-hmm. um, or he's navi- navigating the fact that he's one of th- only uh, he's one of three Spider-Men, mm. big screen Hollywood Spider. So I'm just in terms of the kind of um, plot, is it worth doing a sort of what does this film do? Where does it pick up? Because the final scene, if I remember, of, of Far From Home is um, Quinton Beck, so Mysterio, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, reveals to the world. Um, yes. Yeah, I also just remembered that also Spider- uh, Tom Holland is also in one of the Venom movies, so actually yes. he's in another one. Yes, actually, there's a, you're quite right. There's oh that dear. whole. We're not oh get, dear! Unless we really want to, there's that whole Sony having its own franchise as an ancillary franchise to yeah, it fun was, stuff. That's a yeah. big web. Uh, anyway, so what Chris is asking is, what's the plot? Yeah, what, what is happens? The plot? What, what, how does how does it pick up, or what's this Spider Man kind of gets let's into say. trouble? Spider Man gets out of trouble. Yeah, that's the plot. Yeah. Everyone loves that plot. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so we, we pick up. Uh, people know his secret identity. Yes. He goes to uh, Doctor Strange, of course, kind of coming in from the rest of the Marvel universe uh, to do a spell, which goes horribly wrong uh, because everyone's kind of an idiot in this film and in so many of these films, <laughs> and they don't just think things through and do them properly. Uh, and that releases all of these um, villains from other parts of the multiverse and of yep. course as as we all knew from the first trailer um, especially those of us who are invested in Spider-Man or, or kind of media um, mainstream media culture generally these are villains from previous franchise iterations that we've been talking about so yep. um, uh, the idea that the multiverse isn't just the multiverse is 
a concept within the MCU which is about kind of different possibilities um, yep. and possibility spaces, but it's also a way of just smearing and smudging together all of this different kind of IP that is now under one roof. So rather mm -hmm. than these media products being distinct or maybe having occasional Easter eggs, you can literally have Doc Ock and Willem Dafoe show up um, from films that were made 25 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, in a way that it's, it's sort of, there's something still seemingly quite bold and brazen about that to me. Like the, this idea that we want to see these things as distinct media products, but then the, 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 the narrative is saying, no, no, this is part of a rebooted transmedia franchise character. And, mm -hmm. the, and the narrative relies on that. And yeah. I find that a weird kind of bit of intertextual, industrial are there, openness. Are the Marvel... And, 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 and given that the Spider-Man films occupy a unique role then within the MCU, if we're saying that, are they unique in that sense? Because as you were talking, I was thinking about the 2019 Elizabeth Banks, Charlie's Angels, mm. and how they have to negotiate the fact that it's a reboot, but it's not quite a reboot because there are scenes where the characters go into a big sort of costume... Yeah. room where all the costume from the previous movies and images and stuff and it's like yeah so that did happen and mm. we're not trying to negate that happened rather the opposite we're really embracing it and pulling it in so it seems mm -hmm. like that that that's a way to do these kinds of stories to, yeah. to that smudging and, and and blurring and actually saying no it's part of the they, they used to be distinct but they are actually they kind of never were because yeah. look how close they are. The proximity between us is, is so close. And I think the the multiverse concept is a a wonderful, as far as kind of Hollywood is concerned, it's a wonderful alibi for doing all of this. So, um, kind of mainstreamed with Rick and Morty, but now we've got it in the MCU. We're going to see it in the the Flash movie. Mm -hmm. I don't know when when that comes out in in terms of when this podcast is released, but. Michael Keaton's old Batman showing up alongside Ben Affleck's Batman in in this this Flash uh, spin-off from Justice League or whatever. So yeah, and and all because we have the multiverse. So the multiverse allows uh, these these um, companies to to redeploy intellectual property and kind of known actors and to to give mm -hmm. us that kind of sting of nostalgic excitement through the excuse that oh well this person's stepping in from another universe, with universe kind of being a stand-in word for franchise. Mm. Um, and so everything turns into the Lego movie, essentially. Yeah, isn't there a, I think it's, I think Dan Golding has written about legacy cinema and legacy franchises, and you have that sort of handover, and I think we talked about this before, the sort of, when we've done the Star Wars movies, Hamill handing, the, the baton is being passed. Yeah. So those sorts of mechanisms have, I guess, existed, but this feels a lot more intensified mm -hmm. because it's, it's not about passing things as, along as much as, because that implies a sort of passing down, mm. whereas here it's passing horizontally because yeah. it's all on the same sort of plane or it's all sort of, the illusion is that, or the, the, the assumption is that all these worlds exist simultaneously and we've talked mm -hmm. um, kind of about the temporality of multiverses, that they're not before and after, they're, they are literally happening at the same time and that's really important for pulling in some of these things. Yes. I would say that, I actually, what I find more satisfying about this movie compared to some of the other dabblances into multiverses that Marvel are playing with is that actually I do feel a sense of this kind of passing on in the kind of the Tobey Maguire and Andrew right, Garfield right, right. figures. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think maybe we can see if we can articulate exactly what's being passed on. But there is definitely a sense of like, 
them giving something or giving a kind of seal of approval. I think certainly with the kind right. of the, the complicated way in which Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man uh, career Left. ended. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whether you know whether this is a kind of you know studio sanctioned narrative, I'm, you know, but like you know, there's a kind of sense that being back in the movie gives Tom Holland a sense that he is now not the usurper Spider-Man, but the rightful Spider-Man. Uh, it's like a, a process of kind of authentication and maybe in the case of the Garfield ones, rehabilitation. Yeah. Giving him the ending that he, all those like, character well, and resolution. Actually, both of them kind of suffered kind of ignominious endings. In the, this is true. You know, Spider-Man 3 was a... You know, absolutely. Oh, actually, didn't We're all picturing him dancing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there was he was going to do another one, and then it all kind of fell apart like a wet yeah. cake. So Andrew Garfield gets kind of um, dragged in, and, and well, I'm sure he didn't get dragged in too harshly. I'm sure a nice contract He's was paid prepared. handsomely. Yeah, um, but but a kind of yeah, there is that kind of yes. One one doesn't hand. Neither of them handed the baton. Mm. The studio replaced them. Um, so with this, I, not to. to pull away from this conversation of, of kind of handing of batons no. and that sort of thing. But because we're talking about actors, there was something that I wanted to, to pick up, and mm. I'm, I'm curious as to what you guys think, because I've I've pitched this to a couple of people and, and uh, it hasn't gone down terribly well. Okay. But um, when I saw the film, and I was particularly struck with Alfred Molina, but with all of the actors and, and Jamie Foxx, uh, Willem Dafoe, and then later on we have... Toby Maguire and Andrew Garfield. Less so with the Spider-Men, but with the villains. It occurred to me that Doc Ock, the iconic villain Doc Ock from Spider-Man 2, Sam Raimi's film from, from 2004, that character is more than the performance of Alfred Molina. The character that we, many people, love from Spider-Man 2, the Sam Raimi film, is a composite, and here's where we kind of move into issues of kind of labor around mm -hmm. film production, of Alfred Molina's labor as an actor, but also the costume designer, the VFX mm -hmm. artists, the puppets who are working on the arms, the director, the cinematographer, hell, even the caterer, mm -hmm. the people driving everyone to set. So that, that performance is shaped by a particular production context. Uh -huh. And then you get a movie like Spider-Man No Way Home, and they're like, hey, get Alfred Molina back in. People love him. And Alfred Molina shows up for a few days on a green screen stage. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with Alfred Molina's performance. And yes. I love Alfred Molina. But I was struck by how it did not feel like the same character. And it made me reflect upon how character is more than just the, the lone actor doing the job creating that figure. There's all these That's other really dependencies, and then you put them in a new film 20 years later, and maybe there's different kinds of production technique yeah, yeah. that are going on. Obviously, different <coughs> director, different co-stars. And it just isn't quite the same thing. So it, it got me thinking about that, uh, especially in relation to Alfred Molina, but also Jamie Foxx. I mean, we all know that The Amazing Spider-Man 2 uh, is the best of all the Spider-Man films, don't we? Don't we? Especially if we've seen it in 3D. Right. Uh, Jamie Foxx's villain, Electro. Brilliant. And he is such a non-figure in No Way Home. Mm -hmm. And partly that's because of the narrative, the script, how much he's given to do. But partly it's just because Jamie Foxx, again, is showing up because someone said, hey, come back and, and do, do the electro thing. Whereas at the time of the 2014 film's production, where he was the main villain, presumably there's going to, be, there's going to have been a, a lot more investment in the crafting of that character and kind of care around how it goes on screen. So... 
Tell me I'm wrong. You Tell me I'm talking let's nonsense. Let's throw in the lizard, what's his name? The, 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 yes. Was like, he even there? Because I know Thomas Hayden Church is just reused footage. Is it? Right, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, exactly. So it's like that kind of belittling of some of the characters that in their own films have their own time, space, context, um, yeah. culture, uh, community about about their creation and things like that. I'm mm-hmm. following this. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, no. Uh, so, what, so, so, your, so your question is, is sort of... Um, is, am, is, I, does it is make there, us, am I right? Am I right? <laughs> that, that the part of the experience of watching Far From Home is to realise that character... No Way Home. Yeah. All the homes. Part of the experience of watching uh, Spider-Man No Way Home is that... Is that it asks you to reflect that character is is specific to kind of, of time, space, culture. Is I, this a production issue? Is this an? Uh, I think it's issue? a production issue. I think it's less that the film is asking us to think about this, and more that in an era when we have, as we've been talking about, these kinds of transmedia kind of smudgings together, um, and we are seeing it across, yeah, all these other brands. That they that it. We are going to be kind of wrestling with those consequences. That that we are going to have to think about who is crafting this act, this 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 character. Is it just the actor, or is it other things too? And also not just yeah. performance, I guess, but also other other creative roles that are being kind of, you know, maybe maybe the set from the the uh, Tim yep. Burton Batman films that's just dropped into the Flash, presumably. But does it feel like that same set, or is it just this kind of blank quotation? That, that then doesn't that carries enough of an emotional charge to be memed and to help sell the film, but but is is not to not to lean into very very old theory, but um, a kind of Jamesonian pastiche, this kind of blank um, thing that's devoid of substance. Yeah, it's this sort of postmodern theory. But I know we're we're, we're all we're all very far beyond that here. Okay, now, and, and yeah, and, and I guess the other you know just playing with some of the ideas that raises is that. There's also, you know, so Alfred Molina comes back, so the kind of bodily on-screen stardom mm-hmm. labour is acknowledged as kind of he's allowed to cl- he's allowed to claim that character almost even more so by coming back. Yeah. In that they could have just recast Doc Ock and done a different version of him, but there's a there's a sense of the film is both asserting Molina's ownership over the exactly, character yes. whilst dissipating the kind of ownership of well I don't know who did the VFX in well, both pre- just presuming that nothing else matters like yeah. as long as we get Alfred Molina dressed roughly in the same way yes and let's and ignore the fact that he's obviously aged um, maybe we de-age that. him maybe yeah. we don't but yeah, yeah like it, it sort of depends on the direction of because of, of, I think uh, is anyone de-aged in the film yeah uh, yes and this is well, I think I'd, you'd know the answer to that <laughs> question. <laughs> the reason I know the answer to this is because... Uh, I, just want to pause, I just want to pause very quickly. Chris has been trying to talk about de-aging on this podcast for about six months. Yeah, yeah, and you... Every episode, I cut it out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because, oh, uh, right. And yesterday, Chris uh, was uh, got the runner-up prize oh. at the BAFs uh, for his wonderful article on de-aging. And as tribute to that, please talk as much as you'd like about de-aging now. <laughs> you know, well, well, thank you. And, and not like this, Alex. Not like this. Um, no, I would say... Um, so the reason I n- know about the de-aging in this is just simply because the nature of academic publishing means that the duration in which this article was in the works, I had to kind of keep track of the latest examples. And often de-aging is this kind of connective tissue between different parts of a franchise. It's often... It, it's within a narrative, so it's about... It's kind of... it's. It's chronological in the sense that it's being used to connect um, sequences from the past to the present, mm-hmm. whether it's um, a very short sequence in one of the Kingsman films to sort of show Harry Hart, played by Colin Firth's p- previous 
life. Um, it's used in the film like Central Intelligence with with Dwayne the Rock Johnson to kind of have a pre pre credit sequence where he's where he's young and then he sort of turns into the Rock. He turns from Bob Stone kind of into this, you know. Anyway, so it's often used as as sort of a, a marker of chronology, um, but it's also used as connective tissue with regards to to um, uh, inches in a in a franchise. So we expect certain actors to sound the same way, but we sort of expect them to look the same way in some senses and and I remember the kind of production this is getting a bit off tangent but the production of um, the, the second Toy Story which is four years after the first one and you have all this technology to make Woody look shiny and brand new but the filmmakers couldn't because that would alienate what Woody looks like in the so they build in a sequence where Woody gets restored and painted so that they can go, oh, this is what the new technology can do. We can make him shiny. We can, so we expect animated, especially animated characters, to look and sound a certain way, and that's kind yeah. of one of the the, the pleasures of, of the, the the franchises. So in the case of this, there are some digital de-aging effect shots for Defoe and for Molina, just because, as you alluded to earlier, Nick, that there are kind of twenty years mm. really between these between these two two films. So it's really about how these films want to claim and whether they do claim de-aging as an effect and obviously de-aging is one of those effects that recurs quite a lot in the Marvel Cinematic Universe anyway um, as well as repeated scenes and in fact the last Spider-Man movie um, Far From Home has that re repeats a sequence from Captain America Civil War which is that de-aging sequence featuring Robert Downey Jr. So de-aging is sort of itself homaged in the second span. Mm -hmm. So yes, so de-aging, there are some de-aging effects in the, in the film to kind of bring things up to date and to not presumably to alienate the audience's thinking, well that's not, that's Melina and it's like, so almost like the visual effects are allowed to improve but the de-aging mm -hmm. effects are allowed to mask the fact that the actor has got old well, so we that, embrace yeah. the new in some cases but we don't embrace yeah. what the character looks like now so we have to so the corrective possibilities of CGI are in a really interesting kind of I think um, both Michelle Pearson, Pearson and Arlish would talk about the kind of connoisseurship of effects audiences mm. that you're always judging you're always sort of in a standoff with the effects and in fact you know watching these films you can sort of say yeah the effects have improved a lot and, so, and that's often one of the ways that we mark mark up these films I think is is part of that it's obviously and, and you the, the previous film as you said it's about a, a visual effects artist so it's essentially about about the illusion of effects and the labor of effects and where where credit is given to effects artists and and or not given to, to effects artists and things like this um, and but but also it's about is it about the role of genre in that because these are also superhero movies doing that so I just I just wondered if there's it's, it's interesting that Spider-Man is doing this, but these are superhero movies that are talking about which, and obviously Marvel's been in the news with regards to sort of the way that it pays its effects artists or effects mm -hmm. artists working right to the bone to, or, to 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 order essentially to do these effects, and and so it seems like it's interesting whether Marvel are trying to kind of cover their backs in that sense. I don't know. It's just a, the fact these are Marvel films doing this, are popular Marvel films, and then there are superhero movies that are rupturing mm -hmm. in the way that you've described. Um, and and you could argue that that's kind of the, I don't know, the return of the repressed or, or the unconscious. Like, yeah, Marvel as a studio is wrestling with these issues professionally. Um, so yeah. they, they sort of somehow sneak their way into the text. And, and just as any conversation around uh, what's the new Spider-Man film going to be in any of these corporate boardrooms, <laughs> presumably would have involved conversations about, well, let's look at the Tobey Maguire films. Why did they work? Let's look at the Andrew Garfield films. Why did they not work? What are people like? Doc Ock. And then you assemble a film 
from those conversations and then the film itself no way home is visibly assembled in that way like it it it, it mm. it's it's so there's yeah the kind of the 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 visibility of the corporate processes behind the management of these kind of enormous superhero genre films yeah. i think is is yeah it's oddly present Inspired. So, so do you think? Because you mentioned earlier on that the, the multiverse narrative is a kind of alibi for U.S. cinema to be able to do these things, and and that reflexivity is built into into No Way Home because as soon as the characters enter, you know, as soon as um, uh, Jamie Foxx or Willem Dafoe, as soon as they end, their characters enter into the film, they're sort of caged up, almost mm. as if they are locked away, ready to be ready to be deployed at various various sorts of moments. Um, is the multiverse enough of an alibi in this film? Because you said that you feel a bit of a disjuncture with regards to Doc Ock and the sort of, it doesn't feel like, and is, and is the film trying to, is the multiverse narrative of the film not, not saying, look, the characters feel a little bit off themselves because mm. they don't quite understand, mm. and Doc Ock kind of doesn't, you're not my Peter. Yeah. So, so is the multiverse narrative enough of an alibi to gloss over these kinds of fractures because it's trying to really lean into the chaos and the fracture and the it's interesting we just you, we're using the word alibi that implies it's a crime being committed yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I think yeah. that's just that, that's kind of got you know maybe this is just a kind of excuse re reductive or boring reading frankly but I'll do it anyway which is just like it's to a crime to draw, be boring no, to, 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 to draw on kind of traditions of critical theory right that that the 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 the, the, mark, the, the power of 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 the capitalist sort of ideology is that it, it's not it's it's to it's to acknowledge all its contradictions, its uh, inequalities, its its badness, and to and to convince them, convince those operating within it that there's no alternative. Mm -hmm. um, and in a way, there's something going on in this kind of re re Marvel as a studio is sort of claiming all of these old versions before the multiverse mm -hmm. there are other spider-man and there are other spider-men and we can have a debate over which is the better system which is the better uh, fictional world which which is our which is my spider-man by the end of the movie you can pick whichever one you want because it doesn't matter yeah. They're yeah. all they're all marvels. You um, can have any color you want as yeah. long as it's Spider Man. As long as it's Spider Man, you can have any uh, flavor of soup as long as it's made by Campbell's. You know, it's kind of that. What's it? The illusion of choice, right? Mm. You know. Um, so I wonder if it's if it's you know that's how that's how these things work. They acknowledge their contradictions, and yet um, the end the, mm. the result is that is it makes the the ideology porous enough for it could, to include everybody. So does this mean it's a post Spider Verse film? Then, because of that, because that that is the narrative of Spider Verse. Anyone, can, we've had the conversation. You know, anyone sure. can be Spider Man. You can be, you can be a person of color, or you can be a pig, but, and yeah, that but, doesn't reduce the meaning of that at all. But mm. it's just an interesting. Well, the, yeah, but the the reading of that we kind of got to, which I think looking back might be a slightly too optimistic one. Is <laughs> is is the Bring is us that, down. Is that the Bring film kind of therefore celebrates multiplicity and goes, these are all Spider-Man, everyone, you know, that kind of, I don't think this film does that. I think no. this film allows a space where it's cool to see these three characters all having an end battle to the end. Yep. But, by, but the rhetoric of the movie is very much by the end. Right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Yeah. But Tom Holland is Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, and please let us get on with that. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's a very different ending to multiverse. Although, yeah, does does Spider Pig have the same level of legitimacy uh, as Miles's character? I'm not. I'm not 
so convinced. And it's part, you know, we've talked about this pretty, pretty kind of part of all these movies, whether it's the, the Wreck It Ralph movies, whether it's mm. these. Uh, kind of general IP crossovers that, that are bringing in this. This is in conversation with Space Jam and New Legacy. Of it's course. In, it's yeah, in conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. with these kinds of movies where they're just chucking everything in. And I'm always interested, and maybe you have an answer to this, about why this is. No pressure. Why this is, hap- why this is happening. Why are multiverse films and these kinds of IP, extravagant IP crossovers, so popular at the moment? What was the moment where they suddenly. This became the, the, the boundaries between mm. or the, the boundaries between different Spider-Man. What led to the fracture? At what point did Doctor Strange cast the spell? Yeah, and what cast was the, us what into was the, the spell in Hollywood yeah. that was cast to make this happen? That's a really good question. And thinking on my feet, I think there's a there's a, a few different factors um, which will all disappear from my brain. I suppose. Well, for one thing, you've got Disney buying everything. So, right. so an example of. Um, different brands, uh, character IPs, franchises, yep. all coming under a single kind of umbrella. And that's not massively unusual, but it seems to be particularly kind of heightened, intensified at the moment. Okay. So if a single overarching studio owns all of these things that they can then blend them together, then now they're seeing a kind of pathway to do that. Okay. So I think that's that's one reason. I think another reason... Um, which I'm going to not do justice, is the internet, social media, memes, I think the, right. the contemporary digital culture in which images and snippets and sort of small ideas circulate mm-hmm. from these earlier texts then create... Yeah, like, would, would Spider-Man No Way Home have been made if it weren't for the fact that people have been memeing Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man for the last 15 years? Like it, I, I think that's a, the idea that we can in our Twitter threads throw in Andrew Garfield, Tobey Maguire, yeah. and all next of this to stuff each other. next to each other, yep. having a conversation through you know whatever kind of subtitles we slap on it. Uh, that's interesting. It makes me think of the kind of the scroll. It, people have talked. I think it's is it um, array aesthetics. This sort of the kind of the swipe between yes. different. It's almost as like the films themselves are like the scrolling yeah. Twitter feed. You're just scrolling between all these different. Yeah, and you land on different characters and stuff. So yeah, so yeah, Lisa Purse um, and Deborah Tudor have yeah. both written really interesting stuff about kind of that. Yeah, the the, the swiping, the shard, the the kind of array, the yeah, um, the the composite nature, mm. which we can then also kind of pull back to visual effects and the yeah, fact yeah. that these images are for the most part composites <laughs> of various elements, some of which were shot on set, some of which were developed by this effects company or that effects company and then it's all glued together years apart years apart <laughs> potentially um, and and likewise yeah so so just as Tobey Maguire Andrew Garfield and Tom Holland standing in the same room is this kind of this this composite of multiple iterations of the franchise so to you know a visual effects action sequence is a composite mm-hmm. of all these different kind of workflows and and um, production realities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they and they do yeah. talk about memes. They also do the meme, the Spider-Man. And they do meme. the meme. So they're sort of in, they're they're aware. Yeah. And make, yeah. So um, the snippet stuff. Um, so is it Carol Vanalis's book, Unruly Media? Yes. Which is sort of like it's yeah. it's this sort of chaos is the wrong word, and and you know people have written on chaos cinema and you know a post intensified continuity way of thinking about a culture of, of kind of quick change in the movies where everything is sort of... The, these. I, I like that idea that the film is sort of this nice, pleasurable scroll through... Or not pleasure, well, we can debate whether it's pleasurable or not, but a kind of scroll through the way, through the kinds of... The way that we engage with social media and the, the scrolling pattern of seeing all these different memes and little truncated clips mm. and facial expressions and the, the film is kind of playing... 
it's speaking to that kind of audience. That yeah. sort of that sort of any other. So there's that was a couple of reasons. There was any, a couple of reasons. Any other ones? The there was a third which I've probably it's kind of internet now. social media. <laughs> um, I, I think the only other one I was going to say was, Disney, was to say that yeah. um, this all you need is one successful. Um, example, and then it will could, could potentially cascade. So you have those those two other reasons, yeah. and then you have, I don't know, let's just call it Rick and Morty, which is a hugely popular animated show, which has, um, I don't say mainstreamed the idea of the multiverse, but but really kind of given it this this prominence. And then maybe that's all it takes for a bunch of people to go, ah, that's our solution. That's what we can use to do this work. Mm. So um, it's not like all of these kind of separate entities kind of alight upon the idea because it, it it's it's the right time. I think you just it can just be a case of one significant cultural product having a big enough impact that then everything else comes in its wake and, and we'll probably history will read it as Marvel doing it first. Mm. But I think there are probably other precursors and then Marvel's just this enormous example and then from that, we'll have the DC universe doing it, and, and mm. who knows what else will kind of yeah. plug into the multi. Can, can I throw in some half-baked thoughts on sort of ethics surrounding all of this? Mm. And, and, and by that, I'm not talking sort of the ethics of what we were just talking about, of which I don't have a particularly positive opinion on, but the kind of opportunities within that structure for, for, for I guess, individual consumers and groups of consumers to have ideas and respond to, to, to this kind of stuff. And I really am playing with kind of half-formed thoughts here, but when you were talking about this idea of, of it kind of being analogous to, to scrolling through um, social media, it struck me that, of course, there's this paradox of social media, which is that we're talking about the consumption of social media because of the way it's designed as a bunch of individuals looking at content. And of course, the very nature of, or one of the things social media could be able to do if it were designed or coded slightly differently, is to is is actually it's a fabric of different users. That's sort of that's what social media is. Suppose it's a web, if you will, um, a social a social web that then, thanks to the monetization of social media and and coding and things like that, turns a bunch of people in a web back into individuals looking at a me. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm just interested in this kind of weird paradox between all these kind of neoliberal market forces that we're describing, all these individualized modes of consumption that we're describing, and this kind of pull towards films that want to connect, to connect everything together, um, to connect everything together on screen, to, to, to ask us to read individual films in response to masses of other films that are out there to develop mm -hmm. reading strategies in which characters can only be fully understood if we fully immerse ourselves in everything they've ever done um, and indeed come together to kind of work it all out and share different modes you know sometimes you need the person whispering in your ear oh that's how that's because of the television show there you need that. Um, you know, you need you need a kind of a whole inf social infrastructure to, to understand these movies. Yeah. So that's okay. the, I guess that's the question I'm yeah. raising. You know, there's an interesting paradox paradox going on mm. in that actually these offer quite socialized modes of reading. They are made available. Whether people take them up on it is another question. Yes. But they're made available through these structures at the same time as all this stuff that you're yeah. describing. I'll throw in a on. very uh, another. Well, that yeah. wasn't half baked. I'll throw in a, a, a 
positively yeah. uncooked. Uh, Delicious. Which it, people love raw cookies out. Yeah, that's yeah. That people want. I think it's the. Uh, is it interesting that uh, on the back of that yeah. that it's the superhero genre which is. Which, yes. which is geared to this, given that the, the, the superhero genre is about sort of an exceptional individual who has great responsibility. Yes. Um, and Very good. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a raw egg back at you of, okay. of uncookedness. Okay. So, so all that's left for you, Nick, is the flour. Yeah. Um, Fine. What um, are we making? What are we making? <laughs> um, uh, so, so I feel like I feel like that's also something that the Marvel people in the offices would have yeah, said. Yeah, yeah. What, what are we what making? Is, what are we doing? So I, I feel like Money. in a genre which is about exceptional individuals rather than sort of teamwork, it, yes. it's that's not what the superhero is about. It's about great responsibility. This film is a, is about great responsibilities because it's having to to that that it's it's trying to place a character that is known for being a kind of lone figure, let's say, an exceptional lone figure who is given to Earth or who, who in the case of Superman, or who is becomes the protector of a city like Batman or whatever, or Spider-Man, a sort of accidental hero. Sure. These are individual um, uh, figures, and so it's interesting that that individuality is being subsumed by a desire to connect and be connected. But Sp- but Spider-Man, this is the raw egg, of all the figures to do this with, Spider-Man we're doing it then. We're doing- is interesting because I think Spider-Man is, is, of all those you know figures you've just named, Spider-Man is the, is the one whose real, re- his re- real world is the most kind of embedded within a structure that many of us will be better able to identify with compared to um, an alien coming down or a millionaire or a millionaire yeah. or a friendly or neighborhood millionaire you know he's yeah, yeah. he's he's a, he's, a, he's a, he has he, ha- he is the one most invested in forging relationships with other people yeah um, often as an obstacle to his superheroing and he also superheroes um, out of this kind of particular kind of sense of responsibility in the sense that he just because he because he has the agency to do it. He therefore must do it mm. at cost to his personal life. And the one positive thing I did feel coming out of this movie, and again, maybe I'd be delighted to hear how wrong I am on this as well, um, is that I think that was missing from the, Maguire, the, the, the Holland version of the Spider-Man, who was introduced as this kind of flippant, fun sidekick to Tony Stark in the middle of um, Civil War, Civil War, yeah. and has really quite enjoyed being a superhero mm. ever since. And Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield, Andrew Garfield enjoyed it a little bit, not much, and certainly not in the second one. Uh, Tobey Maguire never really he, he whoops about when he he get, has a bit of fun when he's web slinging, but largely and when he's he, dancing. Largely he does it as a response to trauma, um, to loss, and to a sense that no one else can therefore he must and mm-hmm. I liked that kind of it, almost the two of them coming back thrusts that character back into those kind of it's easy to be very glib about the kind of motto of Spider-Man because it is so nonsensically repeated but there is there, that is actually meditated on in in the in the first two incarnations mm-hmm. of the character in the way it never is in, in this Marvel version but by the end of it that character is infused with the same kind of um, I must, therefore I will, uh, uh, and mm. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't have an answer to any of these yeah. um, eggs or recipe sure. ideas, yeah. but uh, 
And I and I haven't seen the get out, second. Get out the kitchen. <laughs> Carry on. I haven't seen the second uh, Venom film, and I really want to. Mm. But but can we imagine a? a, a I'm sure we can imagine um, a Tom Holland Spider-Man film with Venom. But but Tom Holland, as you as you kind of suggested, yeah, he's 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 much less tortured. Yes. So mm. it would read very differently. This would not be an expression of his internal torment and his his guilt about the people he's lost or couldn't save. It, it would just have to be a bunch of fun japes where him him he and Tom Hardy have a fight and and then they team up to fight something bigger. Yeah. Whereas, like in you know, Spider-Man Three, not everybody's favorite film, but but Venom is functioning as this expression of yeah. pain and anguish, or at least kind of is coming vaguely from yeah, that yeah. place. Yeah. So I think yeah, like that as a thought exercise. How how would a character like Venom, who takes over Spider-Man and is the the villainous Spider-Man, how would that function with Hollander? Very differently, if at all, I think. Yeah. I've called I, him Hollander. I knew I'd do that at some point. Um, yeah. <laughs> I really um, want Tom Hollander to play Spider-Man. Although the kind of person, the kind of person that he is at the end of the movie, I mean, we'll wait and see, but there's a hint towards a kind of more... I don't. I never think you're supposed to identify with Spider-Man in the first... In, in, as a character. I think you're, you're not supposed to go, oh, God, I wish I was Spider-Man. I, don't, I think... I think to an extent you are in the visuals and in the fun and the mm. frivolity, but actually in terms of the thematic of the movie, it's it's. I'm glad. I think the film. It, it, I'm, I'm glad, glad my, there is a Spider-Man. Yeah. I'm I'm glad I'm not Spider-Man. Well, I'm um, I'm not going to overreg this, uh, but yeah. we've talked previously again talked about the difference between uh, alignment, allegiance, and subjectivity. Yeah. So I think you're saying is that one one enjoys being. One enjoys being um, kind of aligned with him in the narrative, and maybe I'm pleased that he I, my allegiance is with him, but I don't want to yeah. embody his. I don't. I, I, I guess him. the meditation of the movie, the thing it asks you to speculate on, is that would you like to be um, exceptional? Everyone wants to be exceptional. Everyone wants to be um, powerful. These are kind of you know primal fantasies yes. of subjectivity. Would you like to be that at the expense of being a subject in the world with others? Um, well, but the, you know. but the the whole film therefore is about that because the whole film is about obviously the culmination is the erasure of memory or the erasure of. But the film begins. One can't identify with him when he's a superhero, but when he's his superheroic identity is revealed at the end of the previous film. Yes. He becomes a lot more relatable. Isn't a word for my students listening, so please don't keep using it. Um, there's a whole New York Times article about the word relatable, um, but he becomes more relatable um, because okay, I'm actually seeing a character I can now I can now empathise with or sympathise with a character who is now struggling with his identity, or yeah, his identity yeah. is being exposed, or he's now the subject of something, or. Um, and the whole end of the, the whole film is leading up to the final point where MJ doesn't recognise him, mm. and that's like oh, okay. So I, uh, now he's finally been given a humanity. Mm. Uh, he's been he's been a superhero for so long. We never really and because he was he's rare for a superhero in that we are introduced to his superheroic personality first. Mm. That not never really happens. You're introduced to the the human before the transformation. Where Superman, because uh, sorry, Spider Man, because he entered into the world of S Civil War in 2016 yeah, fully as a fully formed thing. The next film has to quickly take it back, mm. but not far because he's still, and then bring it forward again. Mm. So he's Spider-Man is a really interesting character within this MC MC, and it is tempting to lump everything in together with the MC and just we talk about phases and sagas when actually you can extrapolate the important kind of mini sagas that are happening. I think Spider-Man is is a, a good example of that because the whole film is about his. He's, we had the grief in the second one, and this film is like, okay, so I'm now going to lose the person I 
the person I love. Mm. And that feels more relatable than a, which isn't a word, but more relatable than but it's but it's swinging. The, the same but different because it's like Uncle Ben, but it's not. It's Aunt May. So we're, we're, yes. we're hitting that same beat, as you kind of mentioned mm. earlier, but but with a, enough of a twist. So yeah, it's still a Spider-Man film. She even says Do you know what? I didn't a version even that. of... She doesn't say with great power comes great responsibility, but she says a version of that line. And we're, we as viewers are supposed to go like, nah, I see what you're doing Do you there. know what? I hadn't registered that her death was an unusual... I couldn't remember. She's she's Uncle Ben. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I don't a know death has to happen to, yeah. to make Spider-Man be Spider-Man. Yeah. That's what makes Spider-Man but it's, it's, Spider-Man. It become, but we've already well, had two and a half. Well, no. We've already, we've already had five well, films As a noble him. figure of, yeah, yeah. of virtue, yeah. that's what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man. Yes. He's a dick in the movies... Uh, in like in the first, you know, he gets homecoming. the powers and he uses them. Well, yeah, I would argue he's a dick in Homecoming, but that's that's not quite what I meant. But uh, in in the in the, the kind of mythology of the film, right. he gets the powers and isn't a hero. He just uses it to like what does he do in the first? Climb movie? the walls and climb, climb buildings and and, and and earn some money from wrestling and mm. and those kind of things. It's the death of or yeah. the, the death of a, of another of of someone close to him that kind of that reveals yeah. that this is not. That there's there's only a one way to do this, even if you don't want to do it. Like. So therefore, it comes quite late on in this iteration of Spider-Man because he's been in Civil War, he's had two and a half films on his own, he's been in a couple of Avengers movies, and now he's given he's given that scene. Mm. Yes. So it's really. Yeah. So what 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 can the film do with the last hour and a bit after that scene? Because it comes quite late on in his his own mythology. And it's the prompt. I can't remember exactly when it comes, actually. But has he met the? No, he, no, he hasn't met the. Is it? Yeah, they, the his friends, um, are trying to find him following Aunt May's death when they accidentally open these portals. Quite, quite ab- absurdly, and I think narratively quite lazily, yes. open a couple of portals and, and suck in two other Spider Men by we, accident. We, we've had a whole film of Doctor Strange learning the ways of that, <laughs> and Ned's like, "Yeah, just give me a minute." Ned's just, magic. Ned's just just do that. Magic Ned. Um, so so that's interesting that that pivot point that comes in some of these earlier Spider Man movies often within the first act that's so maybe in the yeah. second act yeah. you know, gotta get things moving. yeah gotta get in this it, it's the reverse of that because it takes a long time yes. he's, he's Spider-Man for a long time before he has this moment well, of we, we could argue he's Spider-Man for three movies before this well, uh, well uh, longer yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's been he's been Spider-Man for five years oh yeah all the event, if you throw all the and the Avengers is what I mean and, he's yeah, been yeah, and yeah. the cameos and so that's an interesting sort of way of doing that scene like that is an interesting pivot point to then bring in the other Spider-Man yeah. because yeah, there's something about at, at that moment of intense grief and that kind of confrontational moment where you have to decide who you are in the face of that challenge. That's when we suddenly get this this sort of splintered identity. This this like okay, there, here's here's all these different versions of me that I now need to kind of pick from or pick and choose from in order to, again, we're back to kind of trauma and grief and therapy, but like, how do I step forward after this horrible thing, Aunt May's death? And and that's the moment where we get multiple selves. And I think that, mm. but I don't think that's something that the film is doing consciously or that it kind of is really terribly interested in, but it, no. it is, in, it is. But it, yes, to use a, a phrase I reckon Victor Perkins liked to use, it's like it makes available or invites. Yeah, invites rather than. Mm. Yeah. Um, um, we haven't really. T- I mean, we, ha- I we won't have time. Sorry, is there anything. No, any- I just realised that I've attributed 
Victor, the late great Victor Perkins is, as somehow legitimising my argument, which I'm I'm convinced uh, I would I, if I if I was so lucky. But um, yes, but I, um, um, yeah, I think that distinction is interesting. So we haven't, yeah, we haven't, we, we probably don't have time to go into the Venom stuff, but it's interesting that that Tom Holland appears in the second. Spoiler alert! So yeah, yeah, yeah. Pl- appears in the credits of. Um, of the second Venom, Let There Be Carnage, mm. um, because Eddie Brock, played by Tom Hardy, is transported as a result of this fracture that's happened into the world of of, um, of Tom Holland uh, as Spider-Man, and then returns in the credits of this film, yeah. No Way Home, back to his world while leaving a bit of Venom, the symbiote, there. So we shall see. That's the next saga. What a strange world we live in. What a strange <laughs> world. So there's that. Um, uh, yeah. Do we have any no. other frames effects. of reference we want effects. to throw at this? Um, or, uh, um, J.K. Simmons, uh, he's not in this one, but is he in this one? He is in this one. Is he? Yeah, yeah. Not for very long. He's never in it enough, I find. Um, it's probably true. But he's another ones. element. He's another yeah. a, a thing you need to throw in because... Why not? Why not? He's available. Everything is a symbiote that's just left. Just the yeah, left J.K. Of... Simmons as Venom. Yeah. Uh, there we go. Just um, basically just whiplash again. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, so any any other final thoughts? Um, uh, I mean, we lots of thoughts there. Um, so, so we don't need That's a nice more. way of saying nothing but was coherent. Nothing no. was coherent, but that's that's the movie. Yeah, we talked about imagination. You said, tend to teased at the start around kind of imagination and um, I suppose that's another thing that the multiverse, it, get, it allows audiences to... I don't say imagine, but reimagine, or I don't know. It's just just a just a really interesting thing that Hollywood's done over the last ten years. Let's say no, we haven't used the words, but I think you know. I, I think the phrase you used at the beginning that was the, the fantasy space of contemporaries. Frank, I like that phrase, and I think what we've tried to articulate is some of the ways in which the fantasy space is either used by its uh, production, by by the sort of wider structures of political economics, and indeed the kind of ha- what's made available to use the phrase again to those watching it enjoying it consuming it kind of that sort of thing so yeah. I don't have any more to say on that other than I think this is all about the way in which these films encourage us to to imagine um, these various possibilities yeah great Nick this you alluded at the beginning that this is from a project that will be out soon or out right now depending mm-hmm. on when I end up releasing this podcast yeah, so, so tease us. tell us about it because it might be uh, freely available for people to access right now I don't know how freely. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> very costly available, but it's still very interesting, so let's talk about it. So um, Spider-Man is kind of a mascot for uh, a book called Gooey Media that is out with Edinburgh um, yeah, this year, 2023, um, which is all about uh, the graphic user interface. So Gooey, G-U-I, um, often referred to as, as a Gooey. Uh, so it's all about how we receive so much of our media and indeed produce so much of our media um, using screens, using graphic user interface screens and the programs that they allow us to access. And it's, it, it seeks to map the consequences of that. And a lot of that is about transmedia aesthetics. So Spider-Man um, as a character, obviously coming from comic books, existing in films, games, television shows, um, and and as as I sort of mentioned earlier, as a web slinger, he sort of he swings effortlessly between these media, which all increasingly, especially the films, the games, come to resemble one another, and more than that, come to resemble as we've sort of talked about, 
the graphic user interface and, and the programs mm. on it. So in order to understand a film like No Way Home, we need to, to kind of delve into the VFX processes that, that designed its spectacle. But we also need to think about social media feeds and how they might yeah. be kind of contributing to its organization of narrative logic. Mm. Uh, and also the kind of aesthetics of maybe the action sequences being drawn from Spider-Man video games, which are also very popular at the moment. So Spider-Man is a, a kind of useful way into um, the contemporary screen media environment, which I argue is this kind of sticky web, um, and because we're watching so much of, of things on the on one screen. You know, previously it would be like we'll go to the cinema to watch some cinema, we'll watch some TV on our on our cathode ray television at home, but now the same tablet, phone, computer screens. Our films, our TV shows, our games, our social media, our maps, our email. And so all of these things start to kind of blend, blur, stick, glue together. Uh, and so that's what the book's about. Great. And, yeah. Brilliant. Is it though, another, is it, yeah, an, an, another, an, another must read. So just uh, so, so just yeah, so, yeah. So, so, so it's gooey G U I. The book is gooey G O O E Y. Uh-huh. G, uh huh. Gooey is in slime. Uh, yep. Ectoplasm. Uh, Exactly. A symbiote, if you will. Exactly. So, I didn't. I, Venom doesn't come up in the book, which is a, a missed opportunity. But uh, there are lots of other uh, puns and, and kind of references. I'd expect, to goo I'd expect nothing less. Well, it's out now or about to be out. So get it pre-ordered. Get it purchased. Get your librarian to buy it, colleagues. Yes, um, yes please. Um, get it on those reading lists. Sounds really, really interesting. I'm looking forward to reading Amazing. myself. Thank um, you. And. You know, thanks so much for coming on. These spaces, your your work is always very good at finding these kind of digital spaces that mm. people like me that who extend don't really, out. Yeah, well, or go this way. sure, let's yeah. use the metaphor a bit longer. But like, yeah, in all seriousness, it's you know, it's always nice to talk more about these things and, and learn more about this kind of the richness of digital culture and its murky mm. um, uh, underbellies and, and, and <laughs> fascinating, yeah, underbellies. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Alec. Appreciate um, it. And thanks for coming on the show. Uh, we have to do admin, don't I? Yeah. Yes. So, fantasy-animation.org, it's the website. It has our uh, whole archive of blog posts and um, stuff podcasts. I yeah, <laughs> forgot yeah. what the word was, and a podcast as well. Yeah. Uh, we've done loads of stuff. On I've I wrote, yeah, I wrote a review of, um, I think it was Far From Home. Um, yeah. And I'd forgotten I'd written that. Uh, but yeah, then you talk about VFX and uh, yeah. probably Mat sounds, Matisse, like sounds like you. A picture of painting Matisse with some glasses. Um, good. We've done, yeah, we've done Marvel. We've done a few uh, of the regular Marvels. intervals, and we've also done um, Multiverse of Madness, which would perhaps be a nice kind of partner to this episode, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if there are any concepts or ideas that we uh, touched on in the episode that needs a bit more unpacking, you know how to um, do that. Uh, you can email us at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M, research at gmail.com for suggestions for future footnote episodes. You can also use the same handle to find us on all the various social media platforms and um, talk to us there. Um, but until uh, the next instalment uh, of the Fantasy Animation franchise, we'll see you next time. I'll see you in the credits of Venom 3. Bye. <laughs>